I've been thinking about, about the challenges that we face in our culture. Uh, we, we all face some challenges. Uh, um, for instance, in our world today, there are those who would, we, we try to fast, and we're fasting, for instance, a social media fast. So up on the screen, I saw this on Twitter. Uh, stayed off social media all night so that I could watch Game of Thrones and then Love Island without finding out who won. That's a 21st century problem. Would you agree? Right? Uh, because social media fasting was not even a thing uh, just a few years ago, right? And, but we do have some other struggles, right? Like, uh, like this next one's a real struggle, probably. Uh, staying with mom, uh, no internet for days, and data all gone. That's a hardship, isn't it? That's a 21st century hardship. Uh, here's another one. When your laptop battery decides to die without telling you it was even low. Been there? Hurts, doesn't it? It's a hard world we live in. Hard world. Uh, how about the next one? Had sore thumb and finger for no apparent reason. Took ages to work it out. It was how I hold my iPad. Yeah, I get a, I get a sore spot on my finger, I realize, from holding, on this, from holding my phone up. And it's tough, isn't it? Tough world. Uh, how about this one? This is, this, this is something. My two-year-old had the remote and just bought the live-action Ghost in the Shell off Amazon Prime. I hope it's good. Anyone accidentally order from Amazon? Yeah, right? What do you do? This is a tough world we live in, and I think there's one more. Uh, this one is one we can all relate to, right? Oh, it's hard to see. Uh, I'm on the last 30 pages of Game of Thrones, but my book ran out of battery. <laughs> right? When's the last? Right? How many years ago before book ran out of your, uh, your battery ran out of your book was never even a thing we even thought of, right? But 21st century problems. And I don't want to minimize that we live in a world that uh, does have some concerns and some difficulties. I believe that in our world there exists racism and apathy and broken relationships and addictions. And I know we have a world that's filled with those things. But often what we identify as a problem or a challenge is less than that. Whenever I'm on a mission trip, uh, when we've been in Haiti the last few years, we always joke about that because the the problems that we find in Haiti are not the same problems that we experience here in the U.S., right? You know, so things like my cell phone battery died, right? What am I going to do now, right? That's such a, such a major urgent problem that we experience, but it really is not, right? Uh, but we do have real-world challenges. But the reason I share that with you is that I was reading in Hebrews uh, for preparation for this message, and I began to uh, get stuck on these few verses for this reason, is that there were some real-world problems that first-century Christ followers were experiencing. They were experiencing persecution by an oppressive government. We don't understand what that even would look like or feel like, but they were experiencing oppression just because of who they were. Just, they were citizens in a country that was oppressed by another uh, government, or by, by, by an oppressive government. Uh, they, were, they were first generation Christians. So they had no idea on how to do the things that they were doing. They're figuring it out as uh, they were going. There was no one to follow. There was no generation before them to follow. They're figuring it out. 
And they were culturally unique. They were different. They were uh, cautiously accepted by because of their lifestyle and because of the way that they were living. And so as I was thinking about those things and those challenges that they face, uh, in Hebrews, there's this just few sentences where there's a snapshot into the life that they were living, or at least that was lived by many of these Christ followers. And so it's going to be up on the screen, and I want to read it to you. And, uh, and then we're going to talk about some other things uh, as we go uh, concerning Palm Sunday. But it says, but others, the, the writer of Hebrews write, but others were tortured. And I don't think he's talking about cell phone battery here. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. And others were killed with the sword. And some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. And so as I was reading that, I was, had a notepad on my desk as I was reading those verses from Hebrews chapter, chapter 11. And I wrote down, how could you believe strongly enough in something to submit to torture? How could you believe in something strongly enough that you would be willing to die? And so while our challenges in the 21st century seem difficult, they do not compare to the challenges that these Christ followers were experiencing in the first century. And then I started to think, what are things people won't suffer for? Oh, people won't necessarily suffer or die for a principle. They won't sacrifice everything for an idea. And they certainly wouldn't give their lives for a hoax. But people would give their lives. People would experience suffering for a person. For a person. And these men and women, I believe, had witnessed Jesus. And because of that, they were willing to suffer. So I want to walk through some of that here, and uh, uh, we're going to look at the Gospel of John in doing that. But I want to mention that there are four, uh, four narratives that describe the ministry of life and ministry at, and, and death and resurrection of Jesus is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell a story in a similar way. John tells a really unique and different story. What John does is he kind of gives us like, like uh, snapshots or snippets of Jesus' his life through the first three years, and he does that in about eight or nine or ten chapters. And then for the final two-thirds of the Gospel of John is all about the final week of Jesus's life. So he gives kind of this big, broad uh, 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 summary of Jesus's life, and then he narrowly focuses on this final week of Jesus's life. And so he begins in John chapter 2, uh, we, we see that Jesus is in a small town and he, he meets a group of people who are celebrating a wedding. 
and he chooses to perform his first miracle at this wedding in this small town. And it's a family that's either because of poor planning or because of financial struggle, they're experiencing this socially awkward and embarrassing moment. They've run out of wine at a wedding. And this is a big deal in first century culture. And Jesus is challenged by his mom to make it right. And he uses this moment to announce his purpose. And so Jesus takes these, these religious watering jars that were there to, to, for, for the people to use as religious purification practices. They would wash their hands before they ate. They'd wash their hands before every course. And Jesus has them filled with water to the brim, and then he turns it into wine. He takes this archaic religious ritual, and he brings new life to it, as if announcing, I'm going to make something brand new. Then John says that in chapter 3, he meets this religious gentleman named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus had spent his entire life in the religious world. And he had dedicated everything to the practice of Judaism. And he was a man who was searching for answers. And Jesus tells him, you've given your life to religion and religious tradition, but you need a reboot. You need a refocus. You need a fresh start and a whole new direction. And Nicodemus is rescued from religious tradition. And then John decides to write in chapter 4 about a Samaritan woman who meets Jesus, just happens to meet Jesus at lunchtime at a well. And this is a woman who has had a, uh, uh, her life is, is filled with despair and judgment and sadness. And she has no hope and no future. But because of a chance meeting with Jesus, he brings her new life and new hope and a whole new desire for life. And then John quickly moves to chapter 5 where he talks about a lame man. And this man was, was uh, in a setting filled with hurt and anguish and despair. And Jesus comes upon this man who is on a mat, unable to move because of paralysis. He has no mobility and no hope. He is paralyzed and all alone. And surrounded by hurt and pain, Jesus asks him this really odd question. He says, would you like to get well? And for me, I'm like, Jesus, why would you ask this? This seems so cold and callous. Of course he wants to get well. Why would you ask someone a question like that? But this man has been sick his entire life. He's been paralyzed his whole life. And to be well is going to reorder and, re and, and redirect everything about how he's lived. Are you sure? Do you want to get well? He says, yes. And Jesus says, take up your mat and go home. And he walks away with his mat and with a new future. And then in John chapter 6, we can read about this feeding of 5,000. There's 5,000 men and women and children, so there's more than 5,000. 5,000 men are recorded, but there's, men, uh, there's women and children there as well. So this is, there's this incredibly cra incredible crowd of people gathered together. And, it's, and the story tells us that Jesus was able to meet the needs of the crowd. I believe he was meeting their physical needs, emotional needs, some relational needs. And he inspires his disciples and tells them that they can do the same. 
And John's not done. And then he goes on and gives us this snapshot. He says in John chapter, in John chapter 8, we meet a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. It's early in the morning. She's been dragged out of the room wherever she has been, and she's thrown at Jesus' feet. And this woman is there only as a pawn because the men who bring her are only using her to catch Jesus. And for her, she's waiting for the death sentence to be announced because standing there in the midst is the judge and the jury and the executioners. And they come with stones in their hand so that they can stone her and kill her for her act. And Jesus does this incredibly odd thing. He kneels down in the sand and he starts writing. Nobody knows what he was writing. I would give anything to be able to tell you, here's what he was writing down. It's one of those questions we can't wait to have answered when we get to heaven, or at least for me. Jesus, you got to tell me. Some people think he was writing the Ten Commandments. These are all just guesses. Some people believe that he was writing down the sins of all the accusers who were there who had brought this woman who was caught in adultery. My favorite is that some people think he was just doodling. But what he was doing, I believe, taking the attention off of this woman and putting it onto himself. What's he doing? We've just brought this woman here and we've just challenged him. Do you believe in the law of Moses or do you believe in something else? And this woman, believing she's there at her death sentence, is given new life. She finds grace. She finds protection. She finds forgiveness. And Jesus says to the men who are standing there, he says, whoever here is without sin, you throw the first stone. And John tells us that the older men left first and then the younger until there was no one left but Jesus and the woman. And he says to her, where are your accusers? And she says, there's no one here. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And so this woman who came believing her life was to end is given a brand new life. And so John tells all those stories all the way through the first eight chapters and what do all these stories and all these people have in common is that each of these people in these chapters throughout this book in jo that John's written have met the person of Jesus and their lives are changed. And their lives are not just changed. I would say their lives have been dramatically altered. Their lives were headed in one direction. And now because of this encounter, sometimes very brief encounter with Jesus, their lives are now headed in another direction. And so why would people suffer and die? And how could they believe in something so strongly? When you've met Jesus, when you've witnessed Jesus, you are willing to give your very life for it. See, people won't die for a principle or an idea or even a hoax, but they would die for a person. 
a person that they've seen forgive and heal and inspire and fill, a person that they've heard talk of joy and love and peace and freedom, a person that they've experienced forgiveness and cleansing and new life. And so John tells all of this up through John, uh, through John chapter 8. And then in the middle of John chapter 8, he has this little story. There's this experience that uh, uh, there's people gathered together and they're talking and Jesus says to them, it's up on the screen, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Verse 33, the people gathered said, but, but we're descendants of Abraham. See, they, they were thinking that Jesus was confused about where they were from. We're from Abraham. See, we're not, we're not those Israelites that were part of the captivity. We're not those Israelites that were part of Moses and the Egypt thing. We're descendants of Abraham. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you'll be set free? Like a bird in a cage, we're all unaware of our own prison, isn't it? Like a bird in a cage, we're all unaware of our own prison. A cage of our own design. Our own personal prison. I was struck by the character saying that evil likes to play games with each of us, turning our world upside down and making right seem wrong and wrong seem right. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will set us free? And Jesus replied, verse 34 up on the screen, I tell you the truth, Everyone who sins is a slave of sin because we all have cages. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. It'll cost you everything, the character said. Your tears, your blood, your very life. Are you willing to give what it takes? So that humanity can be part of the family. And so why would these men and women in Hebrews be willing to suffer and die for a person, a person that they've seen and heard and experienced because they've seen and heard and experienced forgiveness and healing and inspiration and, and cleansing and new life. And after John talks about all those things in John chapters 1 through 8, he now go, uh, mentions freedom in 8. Then John goes on some more before we get to Holy Week. John has a few more snippets of Jesus' life. Uh, in John chapter 9, it's a story of a blind man. This man has lived a lifetime of darkness. When the disciples meet this gentleman, they want to have a Sunday school lesson. And they ask Jesus, so why is this guy blind? Is it something he did? Or is it something his parents did? 
Jesus, though, doesn't see the man as a Sunday school lesson. He sees the man as a man living in darkness. And he turns his world from dark to light. And then in John chapter 10, John records that Jesus says, My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. Another translation says, I came to give a better life than you've ever dreamed of. And then in John chapter 11, Lazarus, the story of this man who has died and he's been dead for four days. And Jesus goes to the front of his tomb and he's going to call Lazarus out and he says, remove the stone. And Lazarus' sister says, it's going to stink. Don't do that. But Jesus takes someone who was once dead and makes them alive. They move from death to life. He didn't just talk about life. He demonstrated that he can give life. Then we get to John chapter 13, and we're finally creeping towards Holy Week. John's moving towards it. From John chapter 1 through 12 are these snippets. Now in 13, we begin to move into Holy Week where we're, where we're uh, beginning to, are celebrating today a Palm Sunday. And the disciples are gathered in the upper room and they're gathered for a meal together. And when they got there, uh, there was, just like in John, cha- John chapter 2, there was this, these uh, water jars that would be available for washing. There would have been water jars available there as well. And when the disciples gathered, they would have washed their hands, and then someone would have been responsible for washing the feet of each person. And because they're a traveling group, what would often happen is you would take turns washing feet if there wasn't a servant in the home who was responsible for doing that. They walked around barefoot in the, in the dirt and the dust, and so the dirtiest thing on your body would be your feet, and you would recline at a table. You didn't have, uh, you didn't have chairs like we have. The table would be low, and you would be reclining, and everyone would recline in the same direction. So if you're all reclined in the same direction around the table, someone else's feet are near your elbow. So that's why you would wash feet. Makes sense, right? And so they would wash feet. But for some reason, on this night, nobody has washed feet. It should have already taken place. I wonder if there was a prideful moment happening here. That there was no servant who would have washed feet, and so the disciples were in discussion about whose turn it was, and nobody wanted to do it, and so they played chicken, I guess. Let's just let it go. Jesus noticed. And it says that Jesus took off his outer garments and dressed like a servant. Now, he didn't have to do that. He could have just washed their feet. But he decided to look like and demonstrate what it looked like to be a servant. And he washed those disciples' feet. A man who they had heard and experienced do all the things that they've heard and seen him do. And now he attacks pride and selfishness. And he attacks it with humility and selflessness. 
and he lays down a new covenant and a new law, and he says, love God and love people. Moving from pride to humility. And so all the way from John chapter 2 to John chapter 13 is this story of freedom and life in all of its fullness. That there's this different life that can be lived. And so why would men and women suffer and die? They would for a person, a person that they had seen and heard and experienced. And after witnessing Jesus bring freedom to the people he met, after hearing Jesus speak and practice freedom from the chains of sin and selfishness that separates humanity from God, Jesus now goes to a cross. And the rest of John's gospel story is about this one week. It's about this week that we're about to celebrate from Palm Sunday through to Easter. The week begins with Jesus entering into Jerusalem, which is today we would celebrate as Palm Sunday. And the week is going to come to an end at a cross and an innocent man dying. The man that they had seen forgive and heal and inspire and fill lives. The man that they had heard talk of joy and love and peace. The man who had personified forgiveness and cleansing and new life. The man who promised light and life to the world would be dead on a cross in only a few days. And so why would they suffer and die? Why would those men and women in Hebrews chapter 11 be willing to have their backs ripped open and be torn in half? Because they had seen and heard and experienced and witness the cross. See, the cross has an impact on all of life and all of eternity. See, it's not only in John's gospel. I believe that you can, the whole Bible from Genesis through Revelation, it's about this man and this event, this cross. That there was an agreement that is signed with the blood of Jesus for all of humanity, that there's a personal crucifixion for you and for me, and that Jesus becomes the substitute for you and for me. That my sin and your sin is paid for, that our chains and our our bird cages are removed and are gone forever. That there's freedom from the cages that we've designed for ourselves. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, there's no longer a separation between God and humanity. That you and I can be in right relationship with God through Jesus. That we can have freedom and we can have life. And that's all because of a person. And the cross that should have been my cross. And the cross that should have been your cross instead became his cross. And so it leaves us, you and me, at a crisis, a decision. It left the first century followers with the same decision. Would they believe in a person, a person that they'd seen and heard and experienced? All the things that they'd seen him do, the forgiveness and the healing and the inspiration, would they believe in all that they heard him talk about, the joy and the love and the peace and the freedom? Would they 
believe in the experiences that they had seen and witnessed themselves. They chose to believe in freedom and life in Jesus alone and that there was even a better life to come. And so the question that I wrote in on that notebook paper that I wrote on at the very beginning uh, weeks and months ago as we were prepping for our Easter series is, will I trust in that person? Do I trust in that person? Now, we live in the 21st century, so it's not the same world. I don't believe that we're going to walk out these doors and be concerned that we're going to have to have our backs torn open or be sawn in two. But yet it does determine and decide how we're going to live, doesn't it? What we're going to believe in. See, it's not a story, it's not a plan, it's not an idea, it's not a hoax, it's about a person. And will I continue to find a way to try and make payment with God? Will I continue to be caged in my own wrongdoing? Because we all have created those cages around us, haven't we? Whether it's relationships that we've broken and torn apart between other people or with God whether it's the mistakes that I've made, and I believe that those mistakes can't be paid for because I've made such horrific decisions, there's no way God could forgive me. Those are the cages that we create. Am I not willing to surrender blank? That's a cage that we create. Will I continue to be caged or will I choose to believe in a person? A person who chose to come between me and a holy God and to pay for and give freedom freely. The band's going to come up or uh, Steve and Gwen, I believe, are coming up and they have a song they're going to sing for us. And I want you to hear the words. I'm going to read them. They're going to be up on the screen, I'm sure, but let me read them to you. It says, roll away this stone, roll away this sorrow and take away this pain that I've been holding on to because I want to be like the birds all singing in the trees. Oh Lord, I want to be free. So take away this fear, take away this doubt and let me know that you are here that you're not going anywhere because I want to be like the fish all swimming in the sea.